Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on December 6, 2020, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is Lower Than the Angels and discusses Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. And turn in your Bibles once again to the Epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 5 to 9. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Here now, the inspired word of God. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou, thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we look into your word, we simply ask that you would be pleased to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, that, Father, that we would see, hear, and understand what you have to say to us this morning, and that hearing it and seeing it and understanding it, we would apply it to our lives, and that, Father, that we would leave this place more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I I grew up in a household that uh, was very much involved in the service industry. My father being a, a chef, he was a caterer and worked in various restaurants. And, and one of the things about being in the service industries that always fascinated me was the subject of tipping. Uh, being a student of human nature, I've watched this practice over the years. And I just want to give you, share a couple of my observations. This is not a scientific study, just some of my observations. You know who I think the biggest tippers are, at least from my observations? It's not usually the wealthiest people. It's not necessarily those who can afford to give a big tip that give the big tips. It's not necessarily those who have received the best service, even though that was the intent of it. The biggest tippers, in my experience, has been those who depend upon tips to make their own living. 
The biggest tippers tend to be waitresses, waiters, bartenders, and people of that ilk because they make their income from gratuities. And I believe that that's true because they can identify with the worker. And they can put themselves in the other person's shoes, so to speak. There's that point of contact, that similarity. We see the same type of identification take place in, in the counseling room. If there is some point of similarity between the person who comes to the counselor with a problem, uh, there's a greater chance of success. The person is more willing to open up and to talk honestly with someone that they can identify with, someone who they believe is sympathetic. In fact, I was appointed a police chaplain a number of years ago, and one of the main reasons that they, they asked me to become a chaplain was, in fact, the police commissioner himself told me, he says, I think he says a, a police officer who is in distress is more apt to open up to you because you've been in his shoes. It's very understandable, isn't it? The text today shows an interesting comparison between Jesus and man. It shows a, an interesting similarity which the writer uses to further the proofs of his argument. Remember, as we consider and continue in our series in Hebrews, let's remember the context of our study. The, the writer to the Hebrews is seeking to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, and in the introduction, in the first few verses, we saw the superiority of the revelation in Jesus Christ to the former revelation of the Old Covenant. We saw that Christ was the supreme prophet, priest, and king, superseding any that preceded him. The author then begins to set forth some proofs for the, his claims about who Christ is. And the first being that Christ is superior to the angels. These first couple of chapters, that's all about him proving that Christ is superior to angels. And he laid out several proofs from the Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that Christ received honor from his heavenly Father that none of the angels ever received. In fact, in verse 14... He shows clearly that the angels are ministering spirits for the benefit of the heirs of salvation. So Christ is superior to them. Then in chapter 2, we came to what, what I call the parenthesis. In verses 1 to 4, we find an admonition to us not to neglect so great a salvation in light of what we have just heard from the author. Uh, this salvation was first proclaimed through Christ, then it was given by his apostles who were witnesses to the resurrected Christ and to his teaching. And their testimony was confirmed by God through, through signs and wonders and various gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we've also seen that while deeply theological, and, and Hebrews is one of the most theological books in the Bible, that though it is deeply theological, it is also an eminently practical book. It has relevance to the situation in the church today, maybe, maybe even more so. It was the theology of verse 4 that brought us into examining even the, the role of spiritual gifts. And we saw how 
these verses in Hebrew spoke directly to the charismatic issue that we face, very controversial issue that we face today. Remember some of our purposes of studying this book. We said that this book would address some of the contemporary problems in the church, and we've seen that already. We're only in chapter 2. Now we continue with the author's proofs that Jesus is superior to the angels. Look at the text again. Look at verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. The world to come is not in subjection to the angels. In other words, the angels do not rule the world to come. What does this mean? Well, first, what does he mean when he says the world to come? Here again, let me pause and remind you the importance of sound hermeneutics. We must always adhere to the principles of sound hermeneutics. Remember, this epistle was written first to the Jewish believers in the first century. Uh, it is a mishandling of Scripture to give these words a 20th century connotation. In fact, let me quote from John Brown in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. He says this, The world to come is a Jewish phrase for the state of things under the Messiah. It seems nearly equivalent to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. In other words, when he says the world to come, to the Jew of the Old Covenant, it was not the eternal state put off to some future time, but the new order of things under the Messiah, which of course would transform into the eternal state. And a careful study of Jewish literature, both in scripture and even extant literature, will show that this is true. This meaning is all but lost in the church today because of the proliferation of millennial madness literature that continues to be printed today. But even if you didn't know that it was used that way, it's also confirmed by the phrase at the end of verse 5 where, where the author says, concerning which we are speaking. Look again at verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. The world to come is described as that which he has been speaking about. And what has the author been speaking about? These last days which Jesus has spoken. Look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. He is talking about the days which God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church. The days in which salvation of Christ has been confirmed by signs and wonders. He has not been talking about heaven, nor the state of man after death, and the context alone tells us that the world to come is the age of the Messiah. And that is confirmed by the general usage of the day. And that age began with the birth of Christ and continues on to this present day. And so, what is his proof then that Christ is superior to the angels? The angels do not rule in this age. The world is not subject to them. They do, have, they do not have preeminence in this age. Uh, they are not the most important beings in this age. Who holds such a position of authority in this messianic age? Redeemed man. God has exalted redeemed man to 
that position. Remember verse 14. Angels are ministering spirits to the ears of salvation, that is, to men. And even the angels are subject to men in this age. Now follow this carefully. That men are given, angels, that men are given preference to angels in this world to come is proof that Christ is superior to the angels. That's the author's intent. And so what does the author use to prove his point? Another Old Testament passage. In fact, it's from Psalm 8, which we read earlier this morning. Let me read a couple of verses. Verses 6 to 8 of of Hebrews 2 are a quote from, from Psalm. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou remembers him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's a direct quotation from Psalm 8 verses 4, 5, and 6. Now what does the psalm mean and why does the author quote it here? Well, let's examine the psalm. First, who is spoken of in this psalm? And this is an important question. Is the psalm addressing primarily Jesus? Is this a messianic psalm? Well, this is interesting. The commentators, even reformed commentators, differ on this. Some say that the psalm is purely only a messianic psalm and that speaks about Jesus. And others say that it speaks about redeemed man but can be applied to Christ because it is, in fact, messianic. I opt for the latter. Some have interpreted this psalm as a a praise to the dignity that God has bestowed on mankind, but I don't think that's necessarily the truth. If you look at the psalm, you will see that this is a psalm praising God for his benevolence to man despite who he is and what he has done. Let's look at this psalm for a minute. The psalmist begins by giving praise to God. O Lord, our Lord, and that's Yahweh, our Adonai. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So he begins with praise. Then he looks at the marvelous creation and continues his words of praise. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained. He looks out at this creation and he's just marveling at what God has done. And then he compares man with the marvels of God. Verse 4. What is man? that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man, that thou dost care for him. He's looking at the comparison, the magnificence of this huge creation, and what is insignificant little man. Why would you even consider him, he says to God. But despite it all, look at verse 5. Yet... You have made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Now, this is an important verse in the psalm. I believe this has the 
prophetic reference to the fall and subsequent salvation of man. Let me tell you why. The words that are used here made him a little lower. In the Hebrew, describes a forced lowering, not a created a little lower. It describes being lowered from a higher position to one lower. So it, I believe it's reference to the fall of man. Man was created with a certain privileged position by God, but was cast out when he fell into sin. Now, a quick point here. The word for God that's used in the psalm is also translated angels. And yet man is crowned with glory and majesty. How so? When he is redeemed by Jesus Christ. It is redeemed man who is crowned with the glory of Christ. And he is said to rule over the rest of creation. Look at verses 6 to 8. Thou, hast made, thou dost make him rule over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And then the psalmist ends again with praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Now, the, the, the major objection to this interpretation is that the psalmist couldn't have understood all of this. And I believe that's very true. But that is also true of many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Many of the prophecies were mysteries to the prophets themselves. Do you really think that Isaiah understood everything that was contained in, in chapter 53? See, do we really think that David understood the extent of his description of the crucifixion in Psalm 22? Probably not. Men who were moved by God spoke mysteries that even they didn't fully comprehend. So this psalm tells us that man fell, and despite that fall, God has raised him up to a high position in this world. In fact, he is the highest in the world to come of created beings, of course, not counting God. God is always at the center stage of all history, but God has exalted man to a high place in this age, and even the angels are there to minister to and to serve him. But it doesn't seem like that's true, does it? As we sit here today in 2020, coming to a close, does it seem like Christ is ruling, or man is ruling over here? Churches are struggling. So the writer to the Hebrews gives us an inspired commentary to help us. In case we miss the point of the psalm, he comments on the scope of this subjection. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 2. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. He makes it clear, all things are subjected to him. Nothing is left that is not. Those are rather bold statements. And this is why some attribute this, those statements to Jesus. They don't see that applying to men. But the writer continues. Look at verse 8 again. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. See, if you're having trouble looking around the world and saying, well, this whole world is subjected to us. Don't feel bad. The author had trouble. We look around and it doesn't seem that the church is ruling and reigning in this world, does it? 
So what does it mean then? We continue reading and let the scripture speak for itself. What does the scripture say? Look at verse 9. But, oh, isn't that a beautiful word in scripture? But we do see him who has been made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Now notice carefully what the writer is saying. Here is one of, well, in fact, this is one of the other reasons I don't think the psalm can be, the whole psalm can be attributed to Jesus, because Jesus is set in contrast to man. But it doesn't seem like all things are subjective, but we do see Jesus. What do we see in Jesus? He, too, was made a little lower than the angels. But why and how? Jesus, too, was made lower than the angels, but for a different reason, in a different way, and with a different outcome. Jesus became lower than the angels because man was helpless without him. He committed, Jesus committed no sin. Man was cast down by God, but Jesus and his Father, in that eternal covenant of redemption, Jesus took upon himself human flesh and was made a little lower than the angels. He must humble himself and take on humanity to save his people from sin. Man was made lower as a consequence of his sin. Jesus was made lower to save us from that sin. And when he was raised from the dead, he received dominion and authority. All authority was given to him in heaven and earth. So all things are in subjection to him. But even here, in the rule of Christ, we must recognize the progressive nature of the kingdom of God. For while Jesus definitively defeated Satan on the cross, the victory won't be complete until the final day when he is thrown into the lake of fire. The victory that Christ won was definitive and cannot be overturned. It will become progressive throughout history and will be complete on the last day. But that in no way negates the authority which he now, with, with which he now rules. And we rule with him. Look again at verse 9. But we do see him who has been made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's another important passage of scripture. He tasted death for everyone. Jesus died for all those who would rule, will rule and exercise dominion in the world to come. And that was by the grace of God. And who are these people and how do they rule? Well, this is another one of those mysteries we can't quite understand but is clearly thought in Scripture. We are in union with Christ. We were crucified with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. And now we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Look at the description in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then only a few verses later, Paul says this, in chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised him up, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says the same thing that we have just read in Hebrews. So how are we sinful men to, said to have all things subjected to us? It seems impossible and certainly doesn't look like it, but we rule with Christ. Even when we don't see it in ourselves, we see Jesus. So Jesus then, according to the author of Hebrews, is superior to the angels. All things are not subjected to the angels, but all things are subjected to redeemed men in Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is in the counseling room. I've had more success with people that I can identify with, people who can identify with me. Granted, I've had a lot to deal with over the years. You, don't, you guys only know me in my redeemed state. You wouldn't want it to know me before. So there's a point of contact. Jesus is said to be superior to the angels for some very specific reasons. But our text for this morning gives us a reason that should warm all of our hearts. Because we have a point of contact with our Savior. All of the promises of God which were excluded, we were excluded from because of our sin, we have been made heirs to through Jesus Christ. We were made lower than the angels because of our sin. He became lower to redeem us from our sin. And all authority in heaven and earth was given to him, and he has, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. No angel could do that for us. It is all through the grace of our loving and faithful God. And Jesus is certainly, certainly superior to the angels. One of the great mysteries of all times is that God would love such sinful creatures as we are. He takes us from the depths of sin and we become in him, rulers over this world. What a marvelous God we serve. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we stand in awe of you. What is man that you would have any thought of him? Just the fact that you redeem us 
and bring us into a right relationship with you would be enough, but you promise us so many other things. Thank you, Father, that you have saved us. Thank you that we are one with Christ and that through him, in him, you have given us the order to take dominion over this whole world. We pray that you would command what you will and grant what you command. Father, for anyone here today who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you take away the stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, that they might repent and believe. We pray in Jesus' name.